0: Welcome to Meekam Presents On The Move, brought to you by State Farm. It's the show geared toward keeping you up to speed with the latest auto news, event coverage, and expert industry insight. Now, here are your hosts, Matt Avery and John Cramon. Hey and
1: welcome to On The Move. We're so glad you've joined us for today's show. I'm Matt Avery, executive producer of The Transmission. Joining me is John Craman, lead TV commentator for Mecham Auctions. John, what's in store for today's show? I really like the show today. We're going to have
2: a little bit of a Ford theme uh, in segment two, Matt. We have got Kevin Marty and that name is probably familiar to most of our listeners as the guy that runs Marty Auto Works since the early 1980s. So uh, we're going to have uh, some of Kevin's insight on exactly what his business is all about, which actually is primarily on authenticating vintage Fords. And then uh, then we're going to shift gears. We're going to talk uh, Copo Chevys. And uh, as you literally wrote the book, uh, which is, of course, uh, Copo Chevrolet's ultimate muscle cars available f- through CarTech, I'd like to have a nice discussion about uh, the Copo Chevy program and maybe dismel- dispel a myth or two about the copo program how does that
1: sound that sounds great i mean there's a lot of uh, misconceptions out there so it's always fun to kind of pick apart how those legendary cars got built so really looking forward to that before we do john let's give listeners an update about what's going on in the world of mecham where do we stand with our events Well, the Vinoy auction, the private Vinoy auction has
2: finished up, and we'll have Frank Meekham on actually next week to give us some insight. He was there at that auction and just could not be any more pleased and gratified with the success of that auction, Matt. It went over really well. It was five days, over 5,000 items, just under 100 vehicles. Interest, energy, and prices extremely high across the board. So it's another, in this era, the COVID era, it's another successfully – Um, uh, executed Mecham auction, which I think really goes a long way to setting the stage for Mecham Indy coming up. John, what's the latest with TV coverage of uh, the Indie auction? Yeah, that's a good question, Matt, because there's a lot of work right now going on between Mecham and NBCSN as far as our schedule. Here's what we know so far. Of course, the auction is going to be July 10th through the 18th. That's a long run. And so far, the network has promised us six days of television coverage. So I'm going to say that we're going to end up with certainly over 30 hours hours of coverage from uh, Mika Mindy. And needless to say, uh, it'll be business as usual for all the announcers. All five of us are going to be back at business as usual. Everybody's doing great. And uh, we're chomping at the bit to get, uh, get back
1: on TV. Now, speaking of news, John, let's talk about some big news in the automotive industry. Ford has unveiled the all-new F-150. First thoughts, John, what do you make of it? I was a little bit surprised to see the truck, that it really fits the uh,
2: appearance of the existing truck, which we've seen since 2015. But I was And I was surprised to hear that... About 80% of the truck is all new. It doesn't look it, but there's very little that, that shares uh, with the previous generation truck. And you know that might be smart for Ford not to mess something up as they continue to be dominant in the market with the F-150 being the number one selling vehicle in America.
1: Yeah, I was really impressed with the amount of um, attention to innovation. It seems like Ford continues to kind of lead the pack with that, with always wanting to make their truck useful to users. Some of the things that caught my eye, I'm sure they did uh, yours as well, but the uh, fold-flat seats for, I guess, some kind of overnight sleeping or or some kind of uh, allowing drivers to to catch some Zs on the road, that's obviously innovative. Um, The other thing, too, that I really liked was some of the Availability of all kinds of different grills and wheels combination, they really seem to understand that truck buyers like to make their truck unique, and I think that's really important. Yeah,
2: and another surprising thing is is uh, the electric uh, truck, which we've talked about so much, continues to take up a, a tremendous amount of of the uh, discussion out there in the automotive world. Kind of downplayed a little bit, although they are going to be coming out with a hybrid version, so that'll be interesting to see how well that does. The rest of the power plant seem to be a carryover, typical choices of V sixes, turbo V sixes, and. and. And even the five liter Coyote based engine is going to be continued as well. But what I thought was really cool, especially for contractors, guys out there working with their trucks, is they are offering a variety of onboard electrical generators and a workstation in the back of the truck to be able to help uh, folks out in the field using their trucks for actual work practice. I think that's that is really cool.
1: Yeah, I agree, John. I think that's really neat. I really like they even embossed, it looked like on one of the shots I saw, they embossed a tape measure on the on, on the tailgate, like you said, just to kind of help the people that are working using their truck. Nice little features. Uh, of course, as to be expected, we didn't get any word on pricing or any kind of performance from any of the powertrains that will come uh, closer to when the vehicle goes on sale. Uh, John, speaking of powertrains, you caught some news about what they're doing with a uh, V8 from the F-250. What's, what's the latest? Yeah, this was
2: kind of strange. Just this morning, Ford has a announced- announced that what they're referring to as Godzilla, 7.3 liter pushrod, kind of an old school V8 that we first saw in the F-250 back in 2019, has been released as a crate engine. It's rated 430 horsepower. It sells for just a little over $8,000. And I think that's important because it indicates one more time the discussions we've had about resto mods and the availability of current contemporary components that can be retrofitted. Here Ford's coming out with sort of one of their large displacement, kind of a mild performance tune but um that engine is well known to be able to put out with just some just some tweaking well over 500 horsepower so it'll be fun to kind of
1: see how well that catches in with the ford faithful as they are upgrading powertrains so john where do you see that uh engine being used a lot what generation truck we talk about f-250s from the 90s or even older I think that that would be a great choice for somebody that was doing
2: a wanted to keep within the Ford family, and wanted to build maybe a Ford pickup truck from the fifties or the sixties or even into the nineteen seventies, but yet they wanted to keep it all in the Ford family. I think that would be a perfect retrofit, and I think for a for a plug and play bolt in engine in the eight thousand dollar range, that's the list price. Uh, they'll be discounted, I'm sure. It's probably a good way to go, and hopefully Ford will have some success with it.
1: Now, speaking of success, uh, Ram is hoping to catch some with an uh, announcement that they are going to be releasing a uh, really off road, hardcore truck in the form of the TRX. little surprise. It's been teased for the last couple of years, made the auto show rounds. Now they're finally moving it to production. John, what do we know about that vehicle? Yeah, this, is, this has been talked about for a
2: long time. And you really got to give a lot of credit to Dodge, Matt, for taking the performance bar and really leading the charge across the board. I don't think there's any denying that. And it, no surprise that uh, we're going to see the Hellcat V8, the Supercharged 6.2 there, that we first saw debut back in 2015 in the Hellcat. Uh, to much success. It was rated 707 horsepower at its launch. It's higher now. Is going to be in the truck. They're going to call it the TRX. I hear it might be released as early as this summer as a 2021 model, and it will have a base price under $60,000. Now, I'm sure they've got Ford Raptor right in their sights, but the Ford Raptor currently, with its twin-turbo V6, is uh, rated 450 horsepower so depending on exactly we don't know yet what the horsepower rating of this hellcat powered uh ram trx truck is going to be but i'm gonna bet that it will be well in excess of of the ford raptor do you think raptor might counter with their
1: new generation truck with some higher horsepower what do you think Well, there was no news of Raptor, as to be expected, with the F-150, obviously keeping the focus on that. So the question remains is that will we see a beefed-up Raptor to go head-to-head? I would have to say yes. I mean, performance, like we've talked about, performance trucks continue to do well in the marketplace. And uh, if Ram's going to raise the bar, no doubt uh, Ford's going to be there to respond. It's always uh, curious to me that Chevrolet seems content to kind of stay out of that arena. They've never really done a hopped-up off-road truck like that. Uh, but Ford and Ram certainly uh, seem focused on it. Yeah, they've really, Chevy has left it up to the aftermarket
2: companies to do uh, upgrade tuning and suspension uh, parts as opposed to doing it for as, as a factory package. Whether or not that changes in the future, Chevy decides to
0: jump in. We'll keep you posted. Meekum Auctions is proud to bring you On the Move with Matt Avery and John Craman. For more on the world of collector cars, head over to Meekam.com. Now, let's get back to the show. Joining us now is
1: Kevin Marty of Marty Auto Works. Kevin, thanks so much for stopping by.
0: Yeah,
3: how you doing, John and Matt?
1: Hey, we are so happy to have you uh, with us, Kevin. You've had a
2: chance to meet and hang out with us before, but I think our listeners are really going to be happy with uh, hearing your words on how it all began. Let me just begin by saying that um, representing those of us in the car world, those of us that are Ford nuts, really appreciate all of your efforts. As I'm going to go ahead and stick my neck out and say, you're considered to be the top uh, authenticator for Ford Motor Company. But But the reality is, is Marty Auto Works is a lot more than just authenticating Fords. How did it all begin for you?
3: Well, it's funny. You said uh, Fords several times in those sentences. It started out with me trying to buy a 68 or 69 Camaro or Chevelle back when I was 16. And uh, as it turned out, everything I was looking at in 1973 was uh, in pretty ratty shape. and. as I kept looking at uh, uh, Camaros and Chevelles, couldn't find anything good. My mom one day uh, grabbed the newspaper and said, let's go look at some cars. And she just grabbed uh, anything that started with the letter C. As it turned out, uh, one of the item, one of the cars on the list was a Cougar. And she said, well, let's go look at that anyway. I wound up buying it. I became a Ford guy instead of a Chevy guy on that uh, turn of a uh, just that small twist of fate, and I actually still have that car to this day. Uh, From there, uh, at a certain point in time, I had contacted Ford about my car, and they sent me back a bunch of information, and I thought, how would they know all that stuff just from the VIN? And it started occurring in my mind that they must have some more data somewhere, and uh, over a decade went by before I started thinking about that uh, more seriously. In the meantime, I had then started the uh, uh, parts business that Marty Auto Works uh, also has, that is manufacturing items like uh, basically underhood engine detailing items, rubber products, battery cables, spark plug wires, uh, heater hoses, vacuum hoses, et cetera. And I wound up uh, thinking again uh, in the mid '90s about that letter I received from Ford, wound up contacting them. They uh, confirmed they had the data. After a couple of years worth of going back and forth with various departments at Ford, uh, we wound up getting the approvals. Uh, by then, I'd been married. My wife became very involved with uh, this too, and so Shelley and I uh, wound up uh, getting all of this, uh, all of this data from Ford and it now has grown to the point where we've got over 150 million records of all the vehicles built you know, by ford since
2: 1967 so kevin take us down a list of all of the products and services that you currently offer and is there anything that's brewing in the future
3: uh sure uh, we you know, on the you know, on the parts side of it again we now we do radiator hoses, battery cables, spark plug wires, uh, the uh, uh, heater hoses, vacuum hoses, uh, rubber fuel lines. We're the company that makes the WitTech clamps that were used both on Ford and GM vehicles. So i am still got my little bit of GM connection there. And you know, on the you know, uh, uh, other parts that we we do are all of the tags that were used on the cars. We make uh, carb tags, axle tags, engine tags, uh, rear axle tags. Uh, the owner cards that uh, came in the glove box originally for these vehicles. And, and then our biggest tag happens to be the, uh, what a lot of people call door data plates or patent plates or vehicle certification labels. It just depends upon what year, because they took different forms. But uh, the, it's basically kind of like the birth certificate for the car. Uh, that contains the uh, the VIN of the car plus information about the uh, color, trim, axle, transmission, and such. Uh, so that's the that's the parts side. And uh, our other contract with Ford is this you know, intellectual property uh, that includes us producing uh, the Marty report as. Uh, Uh, as you guys uh, mentioned quite often on the auctions, which uh, we do appreciate, uh, we do appreciate the uh, recognition uh, for that. We make three versions of that report, a standard, a deluxe, and an elite, and they each have different uh, purposes depending upon whether you're just looking at a vehicle or whether you're like hardcore serious about it and you want to put something very nice on the wall. So we do those, but we also... Can run because we have all of the data of every single vehicle. We can run statistical analysis, so we can determine things like if you wanted to know how many 1969 Mach 1 Mustangs were painted candy apple red uh, with the uh, black uh, Mach 1 interior and a 428 Cobra Jet Ram Air engine with a four-speed that happened to have. Uh, a console, we can make that determination of that exact number. That's why a lot of times when you see someone says, well, my car is one of this many, they were able to get that information from us. But in addition to those uh, personalized production stats, as we call them, uh, we also reproduce window stickers uh, for the cars uh, under a license with Ford. So uh, these are authentic. They're They're not made up. They uh, they're winding up coming from the actual Ford data, so even the the dealer info is actually correct for uh, that particular dealer at that particular time. Because as we know, dealers uh, change hands and they move and such. So we but we've got all of that information, so we wind up being able to you know, produce a correct uh, window sticker for the uh, vehicle. Also, uh, in addition, as you mentioned, I uh, I do look at vehicles for people to. Uh, verify whether they're correct uh, or not and I know uh, coming down a little further in the segment we we' talking about one special car that uh, Meum was recently involved with uh, having to do with exactly uh, that of me looking at cars so that's a uh, that's a broad overview
2: what year makes and models are you currently able to provide this type of build information for
3: uh, everything from uh, 1967 through 2017. And it doesn't matter. And strangely enough, like I just ran a report for a flex uh, yesterday. Uh, we get uh, we get people that have gotten, you remember the old LN7s? Uh, we will yep. have people that ask for reports for those, for uh, Pintos. Uh, uh, of course, the, the big one is always the Mustang. Most Most of the business is Mustang, but just like I'm sure uh, you, uh, John, you know the way the uh, uh, old classic trucks, especially the, the uh, for Ford, the F-Series and Bronco, are becoming so popular. Well, we saw those trends. See, we get to see trends uh, before they happen. We started seeing lots and lots of people ordering more and more uh, reports for you know, the F-Series trucks plus the uh, Bronco. So, um kind of we always get kind of a glimpse of the future where the market is headed by uh, when when you've got all the records for everything and then you start seeing what's where it's interesting people you can start saying oh this is this is what's coming up so and especially lately because of the uh, new Bronco that's going to be coming out there's been a real surge in interest in those uh, uh, late 60s, and then the 70s Broncos.
1: Kevin, when it comes to all that data, how have you found that Ford treats that? You mentioned you're you're pulling a report for a pretty modern flex. After a certain amount of years, does Ford purge that, and is it up to people like you to safeguard it?
3: The, uh, uh, well, interestingly, Ford uh, uh, used to purge their data. Uh, in fact, uh, back back in the uh, in the old days, they used to store all this on uh, mag tape. It was this one inch wide tape, and it looked like an old reel to reel tape recorder that these you know, were were put on. I actually talked to the uh, data processing manager who one day got a memo back in the 80s saying we, we need a, another t- we need a tape. For loading some data on, would you take one of those old tapes uh, that's got the 1966 data on it, and would you erase that so that we can uh, we can uh, put some other data on it? So with that single memo, poof, all the 1966 data went away. Now, by the time they were, by the time we get to 1967, uh, interestingly, because of uh, good old Ralph Nader. And because of the Federal Motorist and Vehicle Safety Act of 1966, uh, Ford was required to hang on to their data for recall purposes. In fact, a lot of people aren't aware, but like 68 Mustangs and Cougars had a recall for a seat back release problem. So these things started, so they started having to hang on to the data a little bit longer. Well, they hung on to it long enough that by then it started becoming cheap to store data, so they've actually retained the data. The trouble is the data is raw data, and so without any decoding material, you would not, you can look at the data and you would it wouldn't mean much to you. It's just it looks like a bunch of random numbers and letters in an 80 column or 160 column format, but we've got all of the uh, decoding material that goes along with that. There's uh, literally uh, a thousand books that I have and a lot of that and and nowadays it's all uh, it's all electronic even the decoding materials electronic so we've we've taken all of that written computer programs that take it and decode it so that it gets presented in an intelligent readable fashion in the Marty
1: report. Kevin, uh, with such an interest and passion for documenting Fords, is it safe to assume that that's what your collection is made up of, or, or do you have some other makes and models in there, too?
3: Yeah, it's. Um, uh, well, first off, so to go back to that Cougar story, as I say, I still have that 67 uh, Cougar. Uh, I also have the second car I bought, a 1970 Cougar uh, uh, XR7 convertible. I also have the third car I uh, bought, a 1970 Cougar Eliminator, which really was the reason why this business got started. And uh, since then, I have, you know, you know, I finally wound up uh, buying a '66 Mustang. It took years to, uh, to get that. Uh, car, and then we uh, bought a 68 uh, Mustang convertible for my wife. Uh, we wind up you know, uh, newer, newer part of our collection. Um, my wife has one of the uh, 07 Hertz convertibles. Uh, because the only kind of car my wife will drive is it has to it has to be black and gold that's just her thing and so her cars wind up working out real well in uh, in that mix then uh, my daily driver happens to be a, a 2013 gt500 convertible interestingly that was the factory test car in fact it was built on the very day that uh, carol shelby died so i kind of like to think his spirit went into the car
2: uh, big news, uh, you had teased us a little bit uh, on it, Kevin, in regards to a very special car that Meekum sold this year at Kissimmee, Florida, uh, and I think most of our listeners have an idea what we're going to be talking about, but the owner of that car was Sean Kiernan, and I know uh, prior to you getting involved in, in taking a look at this car and evaluating this car, you had established a relationship with with Sean. I'm going to let you take it from here.
3: Okay, the uh, yeah, that the, uh, to wind back a little bit further than that, I would have people ordering uh, Marty reports for you know, the two vins were known you know, out there for the the two cars that were used in the uh, movie bullet. And so periodically I'd get reports. Uh, ordered by people. I always ask the question, we have certain numbers, uh, certain VINs flagged in the system as being significant vehicles, whether it's the uh, uh, Boss 302 that Edsel Ford received that was... uh, So can you imagine getting a car in primer? His dad... Uh, the Deuce ordered the car for his son in primer, so that he could get it painted whatever color he wanted after he saw the car. So we have those we have those special cars flagged like that. And when uh, when I'd get people ordering those, I always ask the question: Do you actually own this car? Or are you ordering it more as a novelty? And uh, in in the case of so when Sean uh, Sean contacted us. And said, I actually did no, I actually have uh, I have bullets and I have a lot of skepticism because we deal with fraud uh, virtually every day. There's there's all kinds of people out there that are trying to pull a fast one, as I'm sure you guys also uh, in in the auction business, you get to see that stuff all the time. You have to turn away certain people. So we had uh, uh, made arrangements for me to come and view the car. And I just, again, I always wear my skeptics hat when I walk in. Now, I went there with John Clore, Ford Communications, and both of us were very excited about, wow, I hope this is the real thing. But, eh, you know, I don't know, John, I've seen a lot of bad uh, uh, attempts. So when when we get there and look at it, it's like, wow, sure looks like the real thing. But the first thing I do, because it's a 68, they used an aluminum VIN tag, and because it's riveted to steel, it gets a you get a, a reaction called a galvanic reaction that deteriorates the aluminum in a particular fashion. So when it's 50 years old, it just has a certain look to it that's hard to duplicate. You can't age metal that fast. So I look at that tag, and I see, wow, that... It's the right VIN. It's got all that aging. And in, in that instant, uh, I just, that skepticism just turned into a joy and excitement. And, uh, and of course, I was real happy for the uh, yeah, Kiernan family. Although I thought later, oh they already knew they had the real thing. It's not like I was telling them something. But uh, yeah, that was that's been a that's been a very special time in our lives for the last few years.
2: Um, last question for you, Kevin. Uh, that car, as, as we know, sold for over three point seven million dollars at Meacham Kissimmee, twenty twenty. Did the excitement and the energy, and then the ultimate sale price, surprise you with that car, or did you expect it all along?
3: I pretty much expected that. Although I will tell you this, I. My estimate was slightly lower, but my wife said, I think it'll sell for 3.75 million. So Shelly was a whole lot closer than I was uh, <laughs> uh, about it. But no, that's you know, that's been an exciting time and uh, uh, still enjoy, you know, uh, the uh, involvement with that it was uh, uh, you know you were there too that was there was the energy in that room when that car came in and the bidding start I mean that happened so fast I had one friend that uh, was uh, was in the uh, in the bidding and he had a number in his head and it went up so fast he said I was out in 15 seconds <laughs> it was just that exciting. <laughs> but he just couldn't believe, wow, I sort of owned the car for a few seconds.
1: <laughs> Kevin, are there any other uh, notable Fords that are still out there waiting to be discovered and brought to light?
3: Uh, yeah, there sure are. In um, fact, uh, uh, if it hadn't been for COVID, I was going to be uh, looking at a particular one that I'm under an NDA about right now but yeah there are uh, uh, there are plenty of uh, more great stories out there and uh, uh, as the years unfold so will these stories
1: well kevin we certainly appreciate your time if people want to learn more about marty auto works where's the best place for them to head
3: uh, website is uh, pretty simple www.martyauto.com that's M-A-R-T-I-A-U-T-O dot com.
2: Kevin, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today and uh, promise me we can get you on in the future to keep us posted on all things Ford. Much appreciated, my friend.
0: All right. John and Matt, good to talk with you. Don't adjust that dial. On the move, we'll be right back. Our program is proudly presented by Meekam Auctions, the world's largest collector car auctions. Now back to Matt and John
2: hey matt let's talk copos and before we begin let's uh, define exactly what it stands for central office production order was a chevrolet program that over the years has developed a bit of a reputation now really glad to be talking to you about it because you literally are the guy that wrote the book on copo history
1: so what was it initially intended to be all about The primary function that it served was to allow customers to make changes to vehicles that they were ordering that fell outside of Chevy's regular production option uh, ordering structure. So in the 1960s, it's utilized for performance, but that was never the intention. Uh, When the paperwork starts to surface um, in the 1940s, late 1940s, all through the 50s, you see it specifically for um, commercial applications. So that makes a lot of sense because obviously during that time, we have a big influx of returning um, servicemen and women coming back, starting new businesses, and uh, going into showrooms and needing vehicles to help them do their jobs. Um, so you know, different examples you might hear of or would be someone going in and saying, hey, I want to start a plumbing uh, business. I, I need three trucks, but can they be painted uh, in this particular color that closely matches my logo? Um, so something like that, that paint color may not be offered as an RPO, um, but if the salesman or the salesman... Sales staff uh, they could run it up the flagpole and um, put in a central office production order uh, to honor that request. What did Chevrolet
2: require once once the performance guys of the nineteen sixties began to recognize that this pro- program existed? what did Chevrolet do to try to accommodate these players? And who were some of the early innovators in
1: putting this in the mainstream? First, let's talk about why it was necessary. Why did Chevrolet during the 1960s even need to use uh, paperwork like a, like the Copo process to build high-performance cars? And the reason is, is that they were trying to avoid government intervention. Um, it was one of the ways that they kept that at bay. So the government, several officials had started to open up investigations, uh, just because of the raw size of Chevrolet, they were so much larger than their competitors, big player in the marketplace. And some of the uh, some government officials thought that they might need to step in and regulate uh, and possibly break up Chevrolet. So obviously, they don't want that. And so one of the measures that they take is that they back away from racing, they back away from performance, just as a way to kind of show that, hey, um, you know, they're a respectable company, they're not building unsafe vehicles. So that's where you see the necessity of Copo because obviously um, Chevrolet, their uh, corporate you know insiders, they want to keep their cars in first place, but they also want to keep uh, the government at bay. So that's the the delicate balance that Chevrolet was in. So in terms of what was necessary, I mean Chevrolet worked with dealer partners is probably the best way to phrase it. You know, partners like Don Yanko, Fred Gibb. Um, obviously, Chevrolet wanted to build fast cars, and so when dealers started to inquire. and started dialogue about what could be done. Chevrolet was more than happy to figure out a way to make that happen. Now, let's talk about the players. First up, you have Vince Piggins. He is Chevy's manager of product performance. He's going to be the corporate insider that can help facilitate all these kind of special skunk work projects, especially the ones that deal with performance and speed like these do. From there, you have outside dealer partners that order the inventory of cars. You have the big ones being Don Yanko of Yanko Chevrolet in Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania, as well as Fred Gibb of Gibb Chevrolet in La Harpe, Illinois. Um, from there, you have a third wild card, uh, and that's Dick Harrell. He's a professional drag racer hailing from New Mexico. He kind of gets caught up in the mix when he takes a job with Nikki Chevrolet uh, in Chicago. Nikki does not order copos, but they hire him to spearhead their 427 conversion uh, program. So he quickly learns how to merchandise speed. And then once he gets connected with, he, bo- he works both with uh, Gibb and Yanko at different points Um, and so he really serves as that kind of speed consultant uh, giving those dealers ideas of what can be done to make these cars faster So what do you consider really to be sort
2: of the transitional area from the shift of some very light modifications on the Corvair to prepare them for road racing, but then taking it to an extreme for high-performance street cars, now these cars being ordered by the folks that you had mentioned? When did that transition really begin? Kind of get into a little bit more detail on that.
1: And when did it end? When did all this come crashing down? Well, by far, the high water mark uh, is in 1969 and 1970. That's where Chevrolet um, starts to... uh not only just change out parts and pieces, but now they are installing completely different engines than they are uh, making available through a regular production option. So that's a big game changer. Um, so Yanko takes advantage of it in 1969 by ordering uh, both Camaros and Chevelles with the L72 Iron Block uh, 427. Other dealers follow suit. And then uh, likewise, also in 1969, Gibb leads the way in getting the very exotic all-aluminum uh, ZL1 V8 installed in 50 Cam- 19 more are built. And then a similar big project happens in 1970 with Yanko ordering 175 Copo Novas that uh, have their L65 350 cubic inch V8 swapped out for the uh, much hotter LT1. So where the copo program kind of fizzles out is in 1970 later in the year there is a camaro uh it does not have anything done to the powertrain but rather it actually has a high back spoiler for uh, improved downforce while racing and then the final copo project again for performance are 400 vegas that yanko orders in 1971 and 1972 that under uh, copo 9734 have forged alloy plated pistons installed so that's kind of the arc the rise and fall of the copo performance vehicles.
2: Is it safe to say that Chevrolet never really promoted this program or did, was it limited to a select dealers? How did somebody even find out about this program from a dealer standpoint to be able to order these cars?
1: Yeah, officially the Copo program for modifying vehicles for performance was never officially pushed or promoted. It doesn't show up in any kind of advertising or commercials, nothing like that. It really was a backdoor program, which adds to the heightened level of interest and intrigue today with collectors and enthusiasts, because the cars really do have a fascinating story about how they got created. Now that's going to raise the question then, how did dealerships, you know, hear about it to take advantage of it? And the simple answer is, Vince Piggins was Accessible to them, and being a racing enthusiast himself, he was going to pay particular attention to Don Yanko and Fred Gibb when when requests come in to talk about what could be done to build higher performance cars. So he's going to be more than happy to facilitate that and to get those kind of cars built. Now, it's important to note that um, when the cars arrived in showrooms, um, that typically customers had no idea about how they got created, and frankly, they didn't care. I've talked to numerous original owners that bought these cars knew, and when they went into a showroom, uh, when it comes to Yanko, Yanko marketed his car so heavily with Yanko Stinger and Yanko Deuce. They just knew they wanted one of those cars. They didn't know it had a Copo behind it, none of that kind of stuff. Same thing with the L72 Camaros is that when um, customers went into the showroom, they didn't hear Copo Camaro. They just heard 427 Camaro, and that's what they wanted.
2: One of the really cool, hot, uh, Copo-inspired cars uh, that was... A sign of the times was the high-performance version of the Nova, uh, the Yanko Deuce, where the 350 cubic, cubic inch LT1 engine out of the Corvette and, of course, the 70 uh, Z20 Camaro also had that engine standard. That was part of the Copo program, and that was to give uh, a high-performance small block, maybe to try to get underneath the radar screen of the insurance companies surcharging and different things that were going on. Uh, did that program surprise you in an era filled with a uh, Big
1: blocks or uh, was that kind of just a sign of the times? To me, that really speaks to Don Yanko's uh, innovation. He had a skilled eye towards not only reading, but adapting to the marketplace to deliver the kind of products that his customers wanted. And his dues is a perfect example of that. As 1969 draws to a close, Don is recognizing that big block power is on its way out as now insurance agencies are clamping down on insuring these hot cars for young drivers. Don recognizes, hey, let's, let's change up the formula to still get those enthusiasts the kind of cars that they want to buy. So what he does is under Copo 9010 he orders 175 uh, Novas that are officially marked as coming with the L65 350 cubic inch V8 that um, only had 140 horsepower but through that Copo it's exchanged for the LT1 350 V8 that delivers 360 horsepower. So very clever, uh, very innovative um, and to say nothing of his ability to market the final cars. The Deuce is, again, another good example of the uniformity that he put into the additions that he added to the car in terms of the stripes and the wheels and the badges to the point where, to the untrained eye, it really looks like something that could have come right from Chevrolet. Well, Matt, thanks so much. The guy that wrote the book, more Copo
2: information uh, can be found in his book. It's uh, Copo Chevrolet's Ultimate Muscle Cars available through CarTech, and uh, we hope you've enjoyed uh, some Copo information
0: you've been listening to Meekim presents on the move brought to you by state farm for more information visit Meekim.com and join us again next time as we take you inside the world of muscle and collector cars and more